life. Um, what a privilege. What, what a joy to be here uh, with you today. Um, you know, in many ways, New Life is uh, like my home church. Uh, this is where I got my start in ministry. I was a Chonusanim, uh, a pastoral intern while I was a student at seminary. Uh, this is the place where I was mentored by Pastor Samuel Park, where I met my closest friends, lifelong friends here, and I also got married here uh, to my beautiful wife, Margaret. Um, I, I love New Life, and I thank God for New Life. And I really wish I could have been here to celebrate your 30-year anniversary with you all. I think that was the last month. I, I was here for the very first worship service when New Life began. I was just a college student, uh, but I got to be here. And... Um, uh, Pastor, well, thank you for having me today. It's so good to see uh, some familiar faces and so grateful to see many faces I've never seen before. That's awesome as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 15 to 17. And the title of my sermon today is simply, uh, Do Not Love the World. Uh, people of God, this is the word of our God, would you please give it your careful attention? I believe you guys stand for the reading of God's word here. Can I ask you to stand as a sign of your reverence for God's word? This is the word of God. Uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Um, my sermon outline today, three simple points. First, the command to not love the world. Second, the reasons to not love the world. And third, and most importantly, the power to not love the world. Let's begin with the command to not love the world. In verse 15, the Apostle John says very clearly, do not love the world or the things in the world. Uh, there are very few commandments in the New Testament that is as clear and as plain as this commandment. But having said that, there's also a sense in which we are to love the world, Right? Sounds contradictory. Well, it's not actually. It really depends on how you define the word world. You see, the Bible defines world in two different ways. One way that it defines it is as creation and as people. So if we mean world as creation and people, then we are to love the world because God loves the world. God loves creation. God loves people. And we are to love what God loves. So in one sense, we are to love the world. But the Bible also defines world as uh, a system of beliefs, values, and practices that oppose God and his kingdom. And if we mean that, then most certainly we are not to love the world. And John clearly says in our text, do not love the world. Or to put it differently, what John here is condemning is worldliness. Now, worldliness is the mindset that says, basically, this world that we see is all that there is. It's the mindset that says, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no eternal world beyond this present world that we can see, and because this world is all that there is, this world and the things in this world are ultimate. You know, and so the things of this world are what I'm going to live for. 
I will base my happiness, my pleasure, my security, my identity, and my hope in the things of this world because this world is all that there is. You see, we may believe in heaven, but we love the world. That's worldliness. That's a worldly mindset. And sadly, many Christians functionally live in this world with a worldly mindset because Though we believe in heaven, we love this world. And though we say heaven is good, we believe functionally that this world is better. And so the command for Christians, and by the way, this command is for Christians. John is not speaking to non-believers here because it's Christians who are tempted to love the world. And so John is addressing Christians and telling Christians, do not love the world. Do not functionally live as if there is no God, as if this present world is all that there is, and you live for the things of this world. So that's the command to Christians. Second, now let's consider the reasons uh, to not love the world. And in our text, John gives us two reasons why we ought to not love the world. First, according to verses 15 and 16, love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. And second... According to verse 17, the world is passing away. So first, love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. Now, the apostle James said something similarly in his epistle. In James chapter 4, verse 4, he said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And in verse 16, John tells us that worldliness consists of three things. Worldliness consists of living for three things. What he calls the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, a better translation for the word desires would be lusts. And so some other translations of the Bible actually say this. Uh, the lusts of the body, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, the Greek word epithumia is better translated as lust, which means not just desire, but excessive desire, over-desire, super-desire, epi-desire, right? You see, to lust for something means that you desire something way too much, that your desire is excessive, over-the-top, and it ends up controlling you. To lust for something says, I don't just want that, I need that. I must have that in order to be happy and whole. And ultimately, it ends up controlling you because we end up living for the things that we desire the most, our excessive desires. Now, these are often good things that we make ultimate things, uh, things that we make too important in our lives, and we feel like our lives would be empty or meaningless or unfulfilled if we can't have them, or if we do have them, we're so afraid of losing them. And another word that we might call these is idolatry or idols. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that word. Now, let's take a closer look at each one of these three things. First, the lust of the body. So what are the lusts of the body? Well, there are three obvious ones I think uh, we Christians today struggle with, things that we can uh, very easily end up living for causing us to be very worldly. First, uh, there is the lust for food and drink. Now, there is nothing wrong with food and drink. Food and drink are good gifts from God, and they're necessary to live. We're called to enjoy food and drink to the glory of God 
but never to be controlled by food and drink. Now, let me give you an example. There is a huge difference between a desire for an alcoholic beverage and an over-desire, a lust for alcoholic beverages. You see, a person with a healthy desire, say for a glass of wine, can enjoy wine, while the person with an over-desire for wine is controlled by wine. And people who lust for alcoholic beverages, we call alcoholics. And people who lust for food, the Bible calls gluttons. The desire for food and drink is natural and good, but when that desire becomes an over-desire, and it begins to control you, when you begin to center your life around food and drink, it has become a lust. And in our culture, we don't just tolerate this, we approve of this. We call people who lust after food and drink, what? Foodies. It's actually celebrated in our culture as if life is about eating the best foods and drinking the best stuff. And that's the epitome of the good life. So for those of you who are shamelessly calling yourself foodies, I want you to reconsider that. Second, there is the lust for entertainment and recreation. Now, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, whether it's video games or K-drama, you know, Netflix, social media, whatever it is. And there is nothing wrong with recreation, whether it's playing golf or traveling or vacationing. Uh, There's nothing wrong with desiring and enjoying those things. But when you begin to over-desire them, if you feel like you cannot be happy without those things, and if you spend excessive amounts of time, money, and energy on pursuing those things, if they become too important to you, if that's, what, if that's what you're always planning for and looking forward to, then maybe they've become lusts. And you can take a good desire for entertainment and recreation, and you can easily turn them into, uh, into over-desires, and they can become functionally what you live for as you spend, again, too much time, too much energy, and too much money on them as you center your life and even schedule your life around these things. And again, our culture celebrates this. Anytime people go on vacations, what do they do? They put it up on social media, and we envy those things. We want those things for ourselves, as if the good life consists in being able to travel the world and eat the best stuff, right? Third, there is the lust for sex. Now, there is nothing wrong with sex. In fact, sex is good and beautiful. Sex was God's idea. Have you ever thought about that? It was God's idea to make sex so pleasurable. When God created man and woman, he, uh, he created them with the capacity for sex. And so sex is not just a, a way to procreate, but it's also the way for husbands and wives to enjoy intimacy and pleasure with one another in a very special and sacred way. Sex is awesome because God made sex awesome. But it's one thing to desire sex. It's another thing to be obsessed with sex or to think that if you're not having sex, then your life is somehow unfulfilled, that you're missing out on the best that life can offer. In our culture, we have turned sex, which is a good thing, into an ultimate thing, something that we need to have, or else we cannot be happy. 
And we have taken sex out of its God-ordained context, which is in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. You know, sex is like fire, right? When it's used wisely and appropriately, it can do so much good. But when it's used unwisely and inappropriately, it can do so much harm. You see, if you use sex in marriage, it does so much good as husbands and wives enjoy intimacy, closeness, and pleasure together in a very special and sacred way as they express their mutual covenantal love for one another. But if you use sex outside of marriage, or if you're viewing pornography, it can do so much harm as you degrade and harm yourself when you're having sex outside of marriage which leads to struggle with guilt, shame, regret, and self-loathing. And you also degrade and harm the other person that you're having sex with. Or you're harming the person that you're viewing in pornography as they degrade themselves for a monetary gain or worse, as they're being exploited as trafficked victims. See, sex really is like fire. It can produce great good and beauty and pleasure if used rightly according to God's design, or it can produce great harm, great shame, and great pain used wrongly outside of God's design. The desires of the body for food, drink, entertainment, recreation, and sex are good. But when they become over-desires, when they become lust of the body, when we live for those things, then we're becoming worldly, as if satisfying the appetites of our bodies is the goal of life, rather than using and stewarding our bodies for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. Second, let's consider the lust of the eyes. The desire of the eyes is to behold and appreciate beauty in all of its forms, whether it's beautiful people, beautiful things, beautiful places. It's good to appreciate beauty. In fact, all true beauty reflects beauty that comes from God because God is the creator of all true beauty. Beauty is good. But if that desire of the eyes for beauty makes, uh, becomes a lust of the eyes for beauty, then we will make beauty and outward appearances the ultimate things. And when you do that, you will covet that beautiful person or covet that beautiful object or you will covet that beauty for yourself or you will resent people who have the beauty that you do not have. You see, when you desire beauty in a healthy way, you can say, wow, she's so beautiful, happy, appreciative. But when you lust after beauty, you say, wow, she's so beautiful, unhappy, envious right? There's a big difference. When you desire beauty, you can be appreciative of the beauty that you see, but when you over-desire beauty, you can become jealous, covetous, and envious of the beauty that you see. And the lust of the eyes also causes you to judge people based on their outward appearances. You will begin to overvalue physically beautiful and attractive people while you undervalue people who may be less physically attractive. And you will overvalue the outward appearance of people, their face, their skin, their body, their clothes, their cars, their shoes, all the things that the world play, uh, praises, 
while you undervalue the inward character of people, their humility, their kindness, their gentleness, their love, all the things that God praises. And if you lust after outward beauty, then when people tell you how beautiful you are or how good your body looks, it'll go straight to your head and puff you up. Or when nobody compliments you on your looks or on your body, it goes straight to your heart and you begin to feel invisible and worthless. You see, the lust of the eyes cause you to be worldly because you will judge and value people in the way that the world does, not in the way that God does. You see, the world praises a beautiful body, but God praises a beautiful spirit. To live life overvaluing outward appearance of people and things is to be worldly. Third, let's consider the pride of life. Now, the phrase pride of life uh, can be translated as pride in possessions and properties, and it can be expanded to include things like wealth, accomplishments, positions, and power. Now, there is nothing wrong with those things. In fact, those are all very good things. They're good gifts from God to be stewarded for God's glory and for the good of our neighbors. We ought to desire those things. But when you over-desire them, when you must have them to be happy or to feel significant or secure, when you take pride in them, when you boast in them, when you live for them, then that's worldliness. You know, when your identity and your self-worth are built on how much wealth you've amassed or how many accomplishments you've achieved or how much power and influence you have in your place of work, that is pride of life and that is worldliness. Do you know what the difference between godliness and worldliness is? Godliness sees those things as gifts from God you receive humbly and you use and you steward for God's glory and for the good of your neighbors. While worldliness sees those very things as if you've earned them with your own hard work. And therefore now it is your right to showcase your own glory with the things that you've amassed. Not for the good of your neighbor, but for the good of your own ego. Let's talk about power for a minute. Power. You know, when God gives you power, whether it's in your home or your workplace or at church, you know, you can use that power in one of two ways. You can use that power to serve others, or you can misuse or even abuse that power to serve yourself. And those who take pride in their power, those who boast in their power, they're the ones who will cling onto their power no matter what, and they will abuse their power to keep their power because they need power for themselves and for their personal gain. Now, there is nothing wrong with power. I want you to think about this. In any organization, in any home, in any company, in any church, somebody has to wield power. Somebody does. But when you love power, when you're drunk on power, when you take pride in power, when, then you will abuse and misuse your power for personal and selfish gain, even at the cost of doing harm to the very people that you were supposed to serve and protect with that power. That is worldliness. And sadly, there is a lot of worldliness, not only in the world, but also in churches and in Christian organizations. 
So the first reason why we're to not love the world is because love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. Here's a second reason why we're not to love the world. It's because the world is passing away. The world and the things in the world are all passing away. Food, drink, recreation, entertainment, sex, passing away. Beauty, passing away. Pride of possessions, positions, accomplishments, property, money, passing away. All the things that seem so important to us right now, they will all pass away. And those who love the world and the things of the world, our text says, will pass away as well. Only those who do the will of God will abide forever. I want you to think with me. A hundred years from now, nobody will remember your name. Nobody will even remember that you existed. How do I know? Do you know the names of your great-great-grandfather? Do you even know what they looked like? Do you know what they did? Probably not. And frankly, you probably don't care. Listen, a hundred years from now, no one's going to care that you ate at the best places. A hundred years from now, no one's going to care if you had a beautiful golf swing. A hundred years from now, no one's going to care if you're some big shot in your place of employment. No one's going to care. A hundred years from now, it's all going to be forgotten, and nobody's going to care. In fact, not even a hundred years from now, even at your own funeral, those things will not be the things that people remember about you. In their eulogies about you, they will not talk about how pretty you were or how nice your house or cars were or how good your kid was at sports <laughs> or if you ever broke 80 at golf. Nobody's going to care about that. And yet for now, it's so important, right? It's our life's quest. We devote everything we have to those things. When even at your own funeral, it's not going to matter. I think that brings some much-needed perspective on the things that we over-desire so much right now, doesn't it? You see the things that we live for, the lust of the body, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they will all pass away. So those are the reasons why we are not to love the world. First, because love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. And second, because this world and all the things in this world that you think are so important and so great, they're all going to pass away too. But you know, I can't stop my sermon here. Because if I were to tell you just those two reasons, you're still going to love the world. <laughs> you just are. So where do we get the power to not love the world? Where do we get that power? Verse 17 says, that the world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Whoever does the will of God, they won't be remembered in this world that's passing away, but they will be remembered by God in heaven in the place that will never pass away. So what is the will of God according to 1 John? Well, John, the Apostle John, summarizes the will of God later on in his letter in chapter 3, verse 23, where he said, and this is his commandment. This is God's commandment. That we believe in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another. That is the will of God according to 1 John. 
believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another with the love that you've been loved with in Jesus Christ. And those who do the will of God, they will abide forever. They may be forgotten by the world, but they will be remembered by the Father. They will pass from this world, but they will live forever in that eternal world that will never pass away. You know, as a pastor, I've officiated and attended so many Christian funerals. It's the hardest part of my job, and it's also the most important part of my job. And I've listened to so many beautiful, moving, and inspiring eulogies of Christians who have died. And do you want to know what every single one of those eulogies is about? I've never heard a eulogy at a Christian funeral where the person was praised for being financially well off. Rather, it's always that they were faithful to Jesus. I've never heard a moving eulogy about the luxurious homes that they lived in or the nice cars they drove. Rather, it's the way they love people sacrificially. I've never heard a eulogy about a person being an important person at work, but I've heard of plenty of eulogies about that person being an important person at home, a loving husband, a sacrificial mom or dad, a loyal friend. These are the things that you hear about at eulogies. You see, all the things that you're living for right now that you think are so important won't even be mentioned if it's a good, good eulogy. Isn't that crazy? And basically, in essence, in a nutshell, every good Christian eulogy is about that Christian man or woman doing the will of God, which is loving Jesus and loving people. That's the essence of life. You know, if you haven't been to funerals, let me encourage you to attend as many funerals as you can because you learn true wisdom at funerals and you learn what is truly important in life in funerals. It's very sobering and it brings an eternal perspective to our very short and temporal lives in this world. So where do we get the power to, to do the will of God? Where do we get the power to resist the lust of the body, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Where do we get the power to not love the world? Well, the only way to have our love for the world broken is if it's replaced with love for the Father. And the only way that you have love for the Father is if you see that he first loved you and gave his son Jesus for you. Later in his letter, in chapter 4, verse 10, the Apostle John will say, In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Only the love of God in Jesus Christ for us will break our love for this world. 
No, it's only when you come to realize that what we seek through the lust of the body, right? The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Um, when we come to realize that those things can never truly fulfill us, that those things can never truly deliver, that those things will always come up short and leave us empty, only then we begin to see all the things that we've loved in this world make promises they can never keep. And sooner or later, you'll come to realize that all of those things will never give you what they promise, that they can never give you what your soul truly wants and desires. And then, by the grace of God, when you come to realize that what your soul truly desires and needs can only be found in the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, it is then that your love for this world will be broken and that you will begin to love the Father. And it is your love for the Father that will give you the power to do the will of the Father. You see, only, the only way that you will truly and gladly do the will of the Father is when you come to see that the love of the Father is better and more beautiful and more desirable than anything this world has to offer. There is an old hymn that I love. It's called, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And when you come to not just sing these words, but believe these words with all of your heart, like you truly believe it, then you will find the power to do the will of God. And the lyrics go like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus in houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Can you say that, church? More importantly, do you believe that? Do you believe that with all of your heart? Only then will you have the power to not love the world and instead to love the Father and to gladly do the will of the Father. Let me conclude my sermon with just a few questions so that we might have just a moment of self-examination and self-reflection. Today, let me ask you, in what ways do you struggle with worldliness? In what ways do you still love the world? What do you need to repent of? Is it lust of the body? Is it lust of the eyes? Is it pride? Is it the pride of life? And some of you have pursued the lust of the body, and at the end of the day, you know firsthand that they can't deliver. You're still unsatisfied, empty, unfulfilled. Some of you have pursued the lust of the eyes. And no matter how much beauty you take in, it's never enough. And some of you have taken pride in your possessions, your property, your accomplishments, your wealth, your power, and you like to pretend like you're so secure and you know deep inside you're still very insecure. Today, as a guest preacher, as a former pastor of this church, 
can I encourage you to joyfully repent of loving the world and the things of the world? Not only because they're sinful and incompatible with with the love of the Father, but also because you know that they will never deliver, they'll never satisfy you. And return to your Father in heaven, because only his love for you in Jesus can truly satisfy your soul and rejoice your heart. And as you see God's love for you in his son, Jesus, let his love satisfy your soul and then respond with a glad and grateful love of your own for him and delight to do the will of the Father, which is to believe in and to love and to worship and to follow Jesus and then to love other people with the very love with which you've been loved. Friends, if you live for that, you will not just be remembered at your funeral with fondness, but more importantly, you will be remembered and rewarded by your Lord Jesus Christ, who will say to you on the last day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Friends, live for that, not the passing things of this world. Amen? And let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you first loved us and you gave your son Jesus for us and you've demonstrated so beautifully, so conclusively, so clearly your great love for us. And now, having seen and received and and experienced this love, would you help us now by the power of your spirit to respond with grateful, adoring love for you and that we might live in this world in such a way that we might abide forever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.